Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello! Out there! I don't look up to serial killers. I don't want to think that anything about them is interesting or cool, but if I'm being honest, they get me sometimes. When Ramirez defiantly struts into the courtroom and shoots daggers at the cameras, I can't help it. I get goosebumps. The same from when I see footage of the library window from where Bundy jumped. For a moment, I'm like, run, Ted. Fucking go. Kill them all. Run, you crazy bastard. Run for the hills. Murder every woman on earth. I don't know what's wrong with me. They just get me sometimes. I forget. I forget that Ramirez raped, tortured, and killed old ladies. That Bundy returned to the dump sites of his victims and had sex with their bodies until he could not stand the smell any longer. Wasn't Ed Kemper interesting? Dahmer had such a boyish demeanor, Danny. Carl Panzerum was fucking awesome. Did you hear what he said before they executed him? That he could kill ten men in the time it was taking them to kill one? Yeah, I heard all that. But I also heard that he sodomized a little boy, then bashed him to death with a rock. How fucking cool is he now? But still, I get it. They sure are compelling. They can be charming. It's a skill I'm certain came in handy when they were doing things that if you could be there for, if you could observe firsthand, you would scream like you've never screamed before. You'd damn near scream your soul away. Falling prey to a serial killer's charm is an issue I don't have with Dennis Rader. Sure, he was a family man who managed to live a normal life while moonlighting as one of the most feared human predators in history. But he was a klutz. He fucked up almost every time he did something and in the end was only saved by his meticulous planning. The struggle to keep myself from falling prey to his charm is non-existent, because he has none. He'd like you to believe he does, but he's just a loser who's playing a part, who would never be able to get away with what he did back then, today, like many of them. And it's nice for once just to be able to tell of what a piece of shit did one day, and see clearly throughout that that's all he is and was a self-serving and tremendously pathetic piece of shit. BTK, Dennis Rader, will be in and out of the news forever. But beyond all the mystique, the flashy nickname, the silly letters he wrote, the scary pictures he took, the odd clues he placed around Wichita that make for one hell of a true crime story, is a man who intended to have his way with a woman and her daughter one morning and ended up completely in over his head due to poor intel. The only reason we even know of Dennis Rader today is because the Otero family was nice enough not to beat him to death. He exists proudly behind bars at this very moment as the prolific serial killer known as BTK, because those like him were still a fairly unknown entity when he first started out. He may be notoriously known. Perhaps his face is even on the Mount Rushmore of American serial killers.
to some even. But he is far from the most competent. And I'd like to think that the crime I'm about to speak of is not completely unnecessary to retell. That maybe we can learn from it. And if not, hopefully we can at least see past Dennis Rader's manufactured alter ego, his so-called Factor X, and take a hard look at what an empty man did to a family full of love on a cold January day, 45 years ago. A day he still lives to remember clearly, fondly, and a day the surviving family members still struggle to forget. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 30, The Otero Family Murders. Dennis Rader was laid off. His position at the Cessna manufacturing plant had become dispensable due to the oil embargo crisis and subsequent nosedive in aircraft sales. It was late 1973, and Dennis was in his 30s, a couple years into marriage, depressed, restless, and with time on his hands. He turned inward and drew upon the dark fantasies that had always danced around the edge of his thoughts and came into play whenever he was sexual with himself which was a lot. The fantasies came forward eagerly, and soon they morphed into a raging beast, an insatiable monster. He would later refer to the seed that spread of this monster as Factor X, something he eventually was able to control to a degree by what he thought of as cubing, his term for one that already exists, compartmentalization. But this isn't about Dennis Rader. This is about what he did to four members of the Otero family soon after he embraced the darkness within himself. As Dennis began to turn, so did the year, and like his heart, January of 1974 was an icy one in Wichita, Kansas. He started dropping off and picking up his wife at the hospital where she worked, to ensure her safety, he'd tell her. But truly he wanted an excuse to aimlessly cruise the streets of Wichita and beyond, something that in time he would begin to think of as trolling, spotting women who tickled his fancy and allowing himself to fantasize as to what it would be like to possess these women. Fantasies about a barn, an old abandoned barn where he would lay track within and roll in a couple of trains, attach the women, their hands to one, their feet to the other, and pull them apart. Ridiculous things. Dennis read too many comic books. Fortunately, this never came to fruition. Dennis, like I said, fucked up everything when he got into the house. He's lucky he even got out of there half the time with his pants on. Raider took to stalking certain areas of which he'd spotted an interesting female and began toying with the idea of what it would take to manifest such fantasies into reality. Dennis loved planning. He loved projects. He had many going at one time. If he didn't get one, he had another right down the street. The clouds of depression parted when he let the picture show of his darkest desires play out in his mind and soon those clouds would be swept away entirely by a vicious wind that would elate, enthrall, and sustain Dennis Rader for the better part of his adult life. It all started when Dennis came across a small white house that appeared to have a new family living in it, the Otero house. It was a corner home, which bode well for escape routes. The mother and daughter of the family had caught his eye. He loved Hispanic women. He had been fascinated with them since his youth, when he'd obsessed over Annette Funicello, 
a member of the original Mickey Mouse Club, whom he'd written dark fantasy stories about back in grade school. Yes, this monster was a long time in the making, and when he finally came of age, the results would shock the world. Joe Otero was born in Puerto Rico, but landed in mainland America as a boy, and grew up in New York City's Spanish Harlem. He was a tough kid, though fun-loving and motivated. Boxing was a major passion, something he was quite good at, winning championships in his time. He met his wife Julie in the neighborhood. Julie was a striking young woman, popular and full of life and love. A prize. She'd come over from Puerto Rico as well, and the two dated for a couple of years before marrying. Nine months later, they had their first child, Charlie. Charlie would later describe his mother as an angel. Joe entered the Air Force as soon as he was eligible and enjoyed a 20-year career during which he traveled a bunch, picking up exotic recipes everywhere he went and becoming quite the cook as a result. Julie held things down at home with their growing family, a family that would grow to include five kids. She enjoyed judo, eventually becoming a brown belt, a significant ranking, and encouraged her children to go to classes as well. She was devoted to her family, didn't drink, was a devout Catholic, and just wanted the best for everyone. Joe retired from the military in his mid-30s and decided to lay down roots in Wichita, Kansas, the air capital of the world, with companies like Cessna, Beechcraft, and Stearman all choosing to build plants there. It was a hub of aircraft manufacturing, and Joe easily found work as a mechanic and flight instructor. The family took up residence at 803 North Edgemore, a little white house on a corner lot. I have a little white house on a corner lot as does a family that closely resembles the Oteros who live across the street from me. This is creepy, but I watched that family. See what Raider must have seen while trolling. The comings and goings. Raider chose a house on a corner lot because of how they're situated. A corner lot has more exit points and is a little more private and accessible. Sometimes I worry about my neighbors, about the holes I see in their routines. Then I realize my home is a mirror image of theirs and drop the blinds, pull up my pants. Small homes are just fine if you have love, and the Oteros had that in full stock. On the morning of January 15, 1974, after the three oldest kids had left for school, Julie Otero worked alongside her youngest kids, making sandwiches for school in the kitchen. Joe was still home, though he typically would have been gone for work by this time. It's unclear why he hadn't left yet, Maybe he'd taken time off to heal from a rib injury he'd suffered in a car accident. The crime scene would later offer that he had sat at the kitchen table, eating pears from a can. He maybe conversed with his kids as he did so. 11-year-old Josephina, or Josie, was described as a shy, sensitive, easygoing young girl who wrote poetry and loved art. Of all the kids, Josie was seen as a top student, which was a proud distinction within the Otero clan. Joe Sr. demanded his children achieve top grades, as well as participate in extracurricular activities. As a result, Josie held a yellow belt in judo. She was in the sixth grade and was turning into a beautiful young woman. She wore glasses and in photos comes off as everything I just described. She looks sweet, cute, shy, bright. Josie was very close to her older sister Carmen. They were outnumbered by their three brothers and stuck together, though everyone was close in the Otero family. She had finished making her sandwich as evidence later, and perhaps laughed as the youngest, nine-year-old Joseph Jr., was asked by his father to take out the trash. Joey was a popular kid in his fourth-grade class. He was a yellow belt as well, and excelling in judo. A quick kid, both in mind and in athletics. 
The school photos of Joe Jr. show a bright-eyed, smiling kid, clearly full of spirit and light. On Joseph's fifth birthday, he'd been given a German shepherd that the family had named Lucky. Junior was all dressed for school that morning and working on his sandwich artistry when he was tasked to do the garbage chore. He called Lucky as he pulled the back door open and unwittingly allowed entrance to a monster. Raider had parked nearby, then hopped the Otero's back fence and crept to the back door. He noticed paw prints in the snow and began to doubt his entire plan immediately. He was wearing an Air Force parka packed with items such as cord, tape, and a gun in the pocket. This was a green BTK, in more ways than one. Early on, he made a point to wear green pants and a green sweater as a wink to one of his idols, the Boston Strangler, a.k.a. the Measuring Man, a.k.a. the Green Man, who wore a green uniform to fool women into believing he was an upstanding man on the job before raping them apologizing profusely all the while. In future projects, Raider would be sure to always carry a hit kit, which made his items easier to keep track of. From inside the house, Raider hears the voice of a man. This is not how he envisioned this. Raider was seven years younger than Joe Otero Sr. and had served time in the Air Force as well. The two had never met, and Raider had planned on that continuing to be the case following this event. He thought he'd had everything covered. He'd even called the house after retrieving their phone number from the library. Julie answered every time. He had watched this home and seen Joe leave almost every day before this time, approximately 7.45 a.m. He had never seen the dog. Maybe this wasn't the best day. He cuts the phone line with a knife and waits to see if he'll actually go through with it. Raider begins to waffle a bit, but something inside of him is overriding his impulse to bail out egging him on like a heavy-handed coach. Suddenly, the back door opens. Raider doesn't hesitate. He draws his gun, a 22 Woodsman auto-target pistol, and herds Junior and his dog back into the house. Lucky barked like crazy as Raider tried to get his bearings. Immediately, he had lost control. Everyone was panicking at the sight of the armed intruder. Raider swings his pistol around, sweating, confused, not sure exactly what to do about all this. Joe Sr. offers to put the dog outside, and Raider begrudgingly agrees, not thrilled with giving up any power over the situation. He watches Joe carefully as he does so, not entirely worried that the man will flee, leaving his family with the armed intruder. Raider begins to explain that he's on the run from authorities and only wants some money in a vehicle. This plan of attack he had picked up from his reading material. Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood and the Clutter Family Murders immediately comes to his mind now, while faced with an entire family under his control. And without wholly realizing it, he had just begun his own true crime story, forever to be retold as well. He promises that nobody will be hurt if they all comply, but he has to tie them up to ensure he can safely get what he needs from them without putting himself at risk of being attacked and disarmed. Raider thought of this as his Russ. He meant ruse, but the man who's about to become BTK wasn't a wordsmith. Some try to pin him as stupid for this, but Raider was far from stupid. I think he was more stubborn than stupid. And once he understood something to be a certain way, as long as it worked for him, it stuck. Raider orders the terrified family into the master bedroom and has them all lie on their stomachs on the bed, with their hands behind their backs. 
The kids are crying, but not outright. They're trying to be brave, like their parents. But they're just kids. The parents are telling Raider to take whatever he wants. They won't move. No problem. Raider tells Joe Sr. to get on the floor. Once he does, Raider takes to thoroughly taping the biggest threat's wrists behind his back. Then moves on to Julie, the second largest threat. He wraps tape around her wrists and ankles and knees. That brown belt of hers now of no use. Raider then pulled some cotton twine out, the stuff used to pull Venetian blinds, and wrapped both of the now sobbing kids' hands and ankles. He used what was left to doubly tie up Joe Sr., after apparently helping Joe get more comfortable due to his accident by putting a blanket or a coat under him. Raider then ties Sr.'s legs to the bedpost. The family now secured, to Raider's satisfaction, he tears strips of pillowcasing and applies gags to each of the Oteros. He then pulls out white plastic grocery bags and puts one over the now thrashing Joe Sr.'s head and ties it around his neck with cord. Raider then hops onto the bed as it jerks from Joe Otero's death throes. Raider begins manually strangling Julie as her daughter looks on in horror beside her, and her son cries out from the bedside. When BTK believes that Julie is dead, he heads back over to Joe, who can be heard hyperventilating. He's rubbed a hole in the bag and bitten through it. BTK wraps a cloth around the man's face, reapplies a bag, and ties it again. Joe Sr. bites his own tongue nearly in half as he struggles to free himself but he is doomed, as is his family. I'm going to step away real quick and say that this scene is only able to be described from Raider's journal, interviews, and testimony in court, and only backed up by what was the eventual crime scene. I did my best. Joe Sr. took post-mortem heat for allowing himself to be tied up. Guess fucking what? You would have done the same thing. A lot of heroes out there think they could look a gun in the eye and just start swinging, getting shot dead in an instant and leaving the intruder to murder your family too because they witnessed it. Raider was without a mask. Well, actually, he had a balaclava on his head that he'd failed to pull down. <laughs> the klutz. If I was Joe Otero, I would deduce that this guy really was on the fly. He was sweating, he was panicked. You know, he had, his, he had this gun out, and he was, just, he was only asking for the vehicle, for the car keys, and for some money. Joe thought that this was the truth that he had just hopped into the house to rob a little and he'd be gone quicker than he came if they complied. I only know not to ever let anyone tie me up because of what happened to Joe Otero. BTK was an anomaly of anomalies. I don't even think Dennis Rader knew he had it in him until he started letting it out. He was probably surprised by his own depravity. How the hell could Joe Otero read a man who wasn't yet written? It's infuriating to have to glean what really happened from the only witness account especially when the only witness is the psychopath who caused the whole thing, and has a vested interest in making the story suit his interpretation. If I went based on his courtroom confession, you'd think Dennis was just a guy who found himself in an impossible position, and because the family had seen his face, he was forced to kill them. He shares what he did to the Oteros as if it were the only humane thing he could do. This is bothersome, for many reasons. I believe in the death penalty because of guys like Raider. I think he should be dead, because he is enjoying his infamy. Also, and this is a big one for me, I know he jerks off to the memory of this day on occasion. The true details of what happened still swirl in his mind whenever he wants to relive them. He believed that the Oteros would, and will, serve him in the afterlife. Joe will be his bodyguard. Julie will bathe him and attend to his every need. Joe Jr. will be his boy servant and male sex toy. He wrote this shit. Josephina, who has the audacity to call Josie, would be a star maiden, 
to teach sex to and practice BDSM upon. Dennis Rader, who is currently still alive in prison and has been mentally stimulated throughout the years since his arrest in 2005 by assisting authors in writing books and playing a fantasy stock exchange with the help of newspapers, and doing quite well, he might add, Dennis Rader gets to live and buzz off of his infamy while the surviving Oteros try to live on without thinking about this shit every day. And the rest of us are left to take in what he did next. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Dennis Rader will later claim that after he finishes off the parents by suffocating them in front of their hogtied children, that he unsuccessfully strangles 11-year-old Josephina next. But I doubt it. He's saving her for last. Regardless, he apparently strangles Josephina to what he thinks is death that puts a bag over a surely hysterical nine-year-old Joseph Jr.'s head. Julie, the mother, 
wills herself back to life at this point. She's only been knocked unconscious. Raider will later lament of how difficult it was to strangle someone with his bare hands. Nothing like how the movies made it out. Julie demands Raider take the bag off her son's head. Apparently he does, and Joe Jr. lays gasping on the floor. Raider sets the type of knot that made him a reputable Boy Scout troop leader. A clove hitch. Easy to tie and untie if you know what to do. He loops it over Miss Otero's head and takes a posture above her that will give him maximum leverage. Mother Julie apparently says about the only thing I truly believe any of the victims said word for word. Quote, May God have mercy on your soul. Raider then strangles the hog-tied defenseless woman to death in front of her still-alive children. He's shocked when the blood that has been filling her eyes suddenly bursts from her mouth and nose. Julie Otero has clearly died. Before moving on to the kids, Dennis covers her face with a pillow in a fleeting moment of shame. Raider glances over at Junior. He notices that the boy is playing possum. His eyes are closed, but his face betrays the effort to keep them so. Josephina may be playing the same game, but no matter. Both are hogtied, and she'll be here when he gets back. She was the main reason for his visit, after all. This his first project, his first PJ, and it's titled PJ Little Mex. She's not Mexican, of course, but Dennis likes the ring of it. Raider gets off the bed and heads out of the room. He returns soon after with more shopping bags and a couple of shirts. He wraps one of the tees around the helpless little boy's face. Junior, Dennis will later call him in court, like he was uh, one of his scout kids. Raider then straps on a bag over the boy's face, then wraps another t-shirt over top of this. Joe Jr. begins freaking out. Raider carries the helpless boy into his room and lays him on his bed. As the boy struggles and tumbles to the ground, his legs and arms and face bound, Raider grabs a chair and slams his ass down in it, breaking one of the supports underneath. He intently observes the nine-year-old's final moments, fascinated by how long it takes. When Joseph Jr. finally dies, Dennis Raider, future family man, church president, scout leader, takes a mental picture and then heads back into the master bedroom. Josephina is awake and likely in shock. This is what he wanted, this 11-year-old girl all to himself. He leaves her for now and tromps down to the basement, where he finds a sturdy pipe, which he throws a rope over and fashions a noose. He's mock-hung himself many times in his own parents' cellar, and this will not be much different, preparation-wise at least. He heads back upstairs and gets the girl. As he guides her away from her dead parents and past her dead brother, the downstairs to the basement of which BTK equates to a dungeon. This 31-year-old man asks the bound 11-year-old girl if she has a camera. She does not. Oh well, he thinks. His mind will have to serve. He promises the worn-out little girl that she'll be with her family soon, in heaven, and a shocked expression explodes from her lethargic face. This pleases Raider, who then pushes her head into the noose and slowly strangles the little girl. He pulls down her pants and underwear as she fights off her inevitable death and masturbates over her leg as she succumbs to strangulation. A strangulation that he controls and prolongs, letting her little feet hit the floor at times so she can recover before hoisting her again as he furiously tugs at himself. Raider doesn't outright rape any of his victims. Some say this is because he was a married man, a Lutheran, that he thought that would be cheating, that it wouldn't be right, but I think that's ridiculous. It's just because... 
This was just about power. It wasn't about sex. Sure, he masturbate, but he wasn't getting off in the physical contact with them. He was getting off on their pain and his power over them. This guy's alive right now. Maybe even reliving this shit in pure detail. Nightly. Before leaving, BTK performed the right-hand rule and swept the house for evidence, taking Joe Sr.'s watch as a memento. He grabs a radio from Joey Jr.'s room, too, something he would later claim he didn't remember the reason for. Most likely it is because the culprits in the infamous Clutter family murder stole a radio as well. Mainly, he took the lives of Joe, Julie, Josie, and Joey. They were just a family making sandwiches. They knew judo. Dad was a boxer. German shepherd in the house, and still, what the fuck? Stay paranoid. The three older kids returned home from school and noticed that the garage was open, the car missing. Their mom had gone to pick up Joey and Josie from school, no doubt. They could hear Lucky barking in the backyard, which was a little odd. Dad wouldn't put up with much of that. They entered to an unusually warm house. BTK had cranked the heat before leaving, thinking that maybe that might mess with the time of death. He did his best to cover his tracks, though after he had left the house, driving the Otero family vehicle to a nearby parking lot, he had returned in his own vehicle to retrieve a knife he had left by the phone line after cutting it. Like I said, Dennis Rader was a klutz that considered himself a meticulous evil genius, a phantom who rarely left any clue behind. Of course, he'd left his semen in the basement, but <clears throat> whatever. I did not mention the other Otero kids' names in the beginning. They were and are Charlie, Danny, and Carmen. At first, they thought their mom and dad were playing a trick on them. After a minute of observing their stiff, unmoving, bound parents, Charlie, the eldest, grabbed a knife and cut their father free from his bindings. It was clear that this wasn't a prank now, as his arms spread apart as if thawing. Carmen took to snipping at her mother's mouth gag with fingernail clippers. The group was hysterical as they realized their parents were gone. Picking up the phone to call for help was of no use. The phone, too, was dead. They ran to a neighbor who came over alone and beelined to the Otero's bedroom. There he saw what looked at first glance to be a murder-suicide, as Joe had a knife beside him. The knife the kids had dropped after cutting the bindings from their father's hands. As responders swarm in, the kids first plead with medics to save their mom and dad, but there's nothing that can be done. The eldest boy, Charlie, directs Danny and Carmen to go intercept Joey and Josie from school. He doesn't want them to stumble upon the chaos. The police soon share the somber news that his younger siblings are inside, and dead as well. One officer asked Charlie if his father would have any reason to hurt his family. What a fucking mess. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.